Hey, welcome to the Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be here this morning. As Murray said, we are continuing on in our pruning series. And so last week, Murray unpacked pruning expectations on people and because he and I are very different people. I was thinking, well, if I'd done expectations, I'd done expectations on God. And the topic I assigned myself was attitudes. And I was reflecting on it. I think in many ways, as Christians, our attitudes in life actually impacted by our expectations of God. Now, you may have said it, older Christians, you may have remembered this little track called the Four Spiritual Laws. Who remembers that? Four spiritual laws. You know what they actually say for millennials my age? Don't give them the four spiritual laws. It just doesn't work for us. But for many people back in the day, that was what God used to bring them to salvation. And the four spiritual laws, as the name suggests, has four laws or principles. And the first law is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I just want to think about that for a moment. God loves you, that's true, and has a wonderful plan for for your life. Now, when you think the word wonderful, what's an expectation that comes to mind? Shout it out. Don't be shy. What's an expectation? Happy. Good. What else do we have there? Easy. Okay. You see some of the problem with that. Now, the four spiritual laws weren't implying that you would have this easy, perfect, happy life. But if that language is thrown out there, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The English word wonderful, we have an expectation that life will be easy. Life will be perfect. Jeremiah 29, which Murray read for us, probably Jeremiah 29, 11. It's a very, very popular verse amongst Christians. Something you put on birthday cards, something you text to people because it's lovely. It's nice. And I'll read it out again. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now again, I ask a similar question. If you just saw that verse about the context around it, what do you think it's saying? Your expectation is, well, God's got a great plan for me. God loves me. God wants me to prosper. He doesn't want me to have a hard difficult life. So if you have this expectation of God to give you this easy, nice life, 
What's going to happen to your attitude to God when that's not met? And as I like to say, context is king. For Jeremiah 29, 11, one must know the context behind it. So year 597 BC, the Babylonian army has surrounded Jerusalem and taken away the best and brightest of Jerusalem, a young Daniel, a young Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The future prophet Ezekiel is taken away, along with King Jehoiachin and all the royal family. And it's left in place is a king called Zedekiah, placed there by the Babylonians. Now, for those that are there in Babylon, the best and brightest, they've been told that there are prophets in Jerusalem that have been prophesying, saying, two years, two years, that's all you have to wait, two years in Babylon. It's going to be easy. Then you'll come back to Jerusalem. And here is a young, bold prophet, Jeremiah. He's saying something different, something radically different. In fact, Jeremiah writes this letter and he sends it to these messengers that are sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the letter takes up pretty much all of Jeremiah 29. And I won't read it all, but it can be summarized as this. It's not going to be two years. It's going to be 70 years. Two years versus 70. 70 is a long time. Now, if you are, let's say Daniel is probably a teenager, maybe the age of 16, 17, 20. 70 years, that's his whole life there. If you're an older person, you're going to die there in Babylon. And here is what Jeremiah says, and this is the context behind it that Murray read for us. It says, it is in the 70 years are complete, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Just that little bit of context, you start to see, hey, it's a little bit different than just my life is going to be perfect. Everything that I want is going to happen. Jeremiah tells these exiles, he's like, hey, get married. Plant gardens, build homes, pray for the shalom, pray for the peace of this city because this is where you're going to be for the next 70 years. And Jeremiah begins his letter in verse 4, and this is really important. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile. These are the Lord's plans. His plans are perfect, his plans are good, but they may not correlate with what you want. Perhaps there are some of us, we like to read those promises of Scripture and think that they're for us. When in reality, they're there for the future generations. Our expectations can shape our attitudes towards God and towards people. The famous uh, Christian psychologist, Larry Crabb, um, he said in his book, Christian Counseling, opening chapter, he says, many of the people that come to him for counseling, their their overriding goal is, I want to feel good. I want to be happy. 
Now, Crabbe says, he's like, look, happiness in of itself, it's not an issue. But when happiness is your sole purpose in life, it's very, very fragile. Crabbe says this, many of us place top priority not on becoming Christ-like in the middle of our problems, but on finding happiness. I want to be happy, but the, but the truth is that I'll never be happy if I'm concerned primarily with becoming happy. My overriding goal must be in every circumstance to respond biblically, to put the Lord first and to seek to behave as he would want me to. The wonderful truth is that as we devote all our energies to the task of becoming what Christ wants us to be, he fills us with joy unspeakable and a peace far surpassing what the world offers. It's a problem of happiness. And I've been doing this of late, bringing props into church. So let's keep the trend up. Let's call this the happiness balloon. All right. Now, balloons, they're pretty. They're nice. But they're fragile. Do you know what balloons are fragile too? Pins. So if your goal in life is to just be happy, 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 I just want to have a happy, happy life. And what happens, I might put the microphone down so I don't blow our eardrums out. What happens when the pin of... <laughs> yes. They will remember this sermon for the rest of their lives. But it's true, though. And this is what Crabbe is arguing. If, if happiness is your one ambition in life, if your expectation is God is to make you happy and to shield you from all life problems, it's as fragile as a balloon in contact with a pin. And this is all that's left. You're left to pick up the pieces of your life. Our pastor, Paul Tripp, and I quoted him in the pastor's desk and in the small group questions for this week. He says, and I just love it. God has not promised me a comfortable life. He's promised me himself. God hasn't promised me a comfortable life. He's promised me himself. In, uh, I teach you a big word right now. In, in theological studies, there's a principle called the retribution principle or retribution theology. Or you could just call it the Santa Claus theology. I like the Santa Claus theology a bit easier. Santa Claus theology says is that if you do good, God will bless you and life will be good. Or you can nut it down to A, maybe that's good works, plus B, which God will give you good things, equals C, a good life. Now, if you try to do A and B and get D or E or Z, you begin to wrestle and think, oh my goodness, if if I've tried to do these things and my outcome is Z instead of C, then I must have done A or B wrong. And if that's how you live your life, like this formula, I need to approach God in this formula with these expectations, things are going to fall apart. Time and time again, I've heard people tell me, it's like, oh, I don't get why I'm suffering. I go to church, I pray, I tithe. God should have given my mum cancer. God shouldn't have allowed this to happen. 
And when you kind of have that formulaic approach to life, God becomes like the government and we pay taxes. Now, as taxpayers in a perfect world, what do we expect from the government when we pay taxes? What are our expectations? Service, yes. We expect the roads to work. We expect the trains to come here on time. We expect services. Now, if we see God as the government and our church attendance, our tithing, our ministry service, whatever it may be, as our taxes, we start to expect things from God. And the Bible speaks into this clearly in two very famous wisdom books, the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, most of us probably know about Job, don't we? He's, he's the righteous man. In fact, he's described here, the man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. That's the, that's the context of the book. Job is this righteous man, upright, shuns evil, has done nothing wrong to deserve what he faces, the loss of his children, loss of his wealth, the loss of everything. And his three friends, we Eliphaz, Bilidad, and Zophar, they assume that life goes into this formula, have this expectation of God. Well, God is a righteous judge. God will only ever punish the wicked. And in their perspective, you, Job, have done something wrong. God would never treat a righteous person like this. God would never do this. You have done something wrong. Your kids have done something wrong. You have done something to deserve this. And Job protests his innocence throughout the book. Now, some people get a bit disappointed with Job because it doesn't answer the, the question of evil and suffering. What it does instead is it answers the question which Satan asks God at the very beginning of the book. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan's mind is like, well, you've given Job everything. You've given him this hedge. So, of course, he's going to worship you. Take that away. What is left? And that's what the book is about. Job's wrestle with God about what he's facing. Another classic wisdom book is the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes there, the teacher there, he says, and this is Ecclesiastes chapter 8 from verse 14, he says, here is another enigma that occurs on earth. Sometimes there are righteous people who get what the wicked deserve, and sometimes there are wicked people who get what the righteous deserve. And I said, this is an enigma. There are things in life that just don't make sense. Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? The teacher's like, I don't know this. This is, and that, that word enigma, in Hebrew, it's chabel. Everyone say that, chabel. Isn't that great? Chabel, chabel. Actually, fun fact, it's the same word to describe Abel, as in Cain and Abel. Abel, his name is chabel in Hebrew. It means vain, mist, an enigma, a mystery. These are just mysteries that we're left to wrestle with. But, in, but even in all of that, the teacher recognises that, yeah, this is, this is um, in chapter 8, verse 12, he says, yeah, even though a sinner may commit a hundred crimes and still live a long time, 
Yet I know it will go well with God-fearing people. That's what the Bible always comes back to. Their expectations we have of God, God is righteous, God is just, God should eradicate evil and suffering. And when the righteous sufferer is going through that and they're sending up their laments and like, I don't understand this, they always fall back. Well, ultimately, God's going to bring justice to this world. Ultimately, evil will be overcome. But it's hard. Easy to say up here on stage, it's hard to do. In the messiness of this world, we do have expectations. We have expectations of God. Perhaps we don't see him as the government and we the taxpayer. Perhaps we see him, as C.S. Lewis says, the, the grandfather in heaven who dots over us. Perhaps we just see God as Santa Claus. He should just give us goodies whenever we want. All of us have expectations of God. But those expectations, they can be fragile, like pursuing happiness as the number one priority in life. Not to leave us downcast, I think what I love about particularly the Hebrew Bible is that the authors don't mince words with how they wrestle with God. Let's jump back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And there's a reason for that because he laments. He laments over the state of Jerusalem. He also laments just over the state of his life. And in language that is borderline blasphemous. In Jeremiah chapter 20, after he's been beaten and put in stocks for, for prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, he says here, let's go read out a couple of verses here from chapter 20, from verse 7, it says, You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. Now let's go back to verse 7. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. It's kind of sanitized in English. In Hebrew, Jeremiah saying, you have raped me. It's the exact same word used in other parts of Scripture to describe a man seducing and raping a girl. Is Jeremiah a prophet saying to Yahweh, the God who serves him, me serving you as a prophet? It feels like you have used me. You've promised me like in this marriage and now you've just ended up raping me and overpowering me. I absolutely despise the life that I'm in right now. I was not expecting this. This is not the type of life that I wanted. And Jeremiah, he continues on. He's saying, all day long, the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach. But if I say, I'll not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word in my heart is like a fire, a fire sharp in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. This guy's just pouring his heart out. He's like, I don't want to do this. But, and there's a but, 
And this is important, friends. When we're wrestling with expectations, when we're wrestling with our attitudes, to fall back on the goodness of God. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, who examined the righteous and probed the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. What amazing contrast. To start off, it feels like you have raped me to going, I'm going to praise you. Nothing's changed. He's still here in this situation. He's still being persecuted, still everyone's saying terror, chucking him into wells, putting him in shackles. His circumstances haven't changed. What's changed? His attitude, his expectations. He's come to this side to know, well, ultimately God is a mighty warrior. He is a just judge. He will hold me up. He will rescue me. This is what the Bible is full of. God has big shoulders. It does seem like blasphemous language. Imagine praying that, Lord, it feels like you've raped me, or you've called me in life. But there's no lightning bolt to zap Jeremiah. Instead, he prophesies for another 30 chapters. It's 51 chapters of Jeremiah. This is just part of the wrestling. This is part of being in a Genesis 3 world. In a perfect world, A plus B would equal C. In a perfect world, when God says he has plans that will make us prosper, that would mean that we have no more suffering, tears, or pain. We heard that word, God has a, heard that phrase, God has a wonderful plan for your life. We would think a life without sickness, death, or tears. Let me tell you what, God has done that. But it's not on this side. It's over here in the new heavens and the new earth. Think about a man that was truly righteous and suffered terrible injustice. That's Jesus. If anyone should have had a life that was easy and perfect, it should have been Jesus. But yet we see on the cross, he became the curse. For us, he that knew no sin became sin, or that we may become his righteousness. And if you are there and you're sitting here thinking, well, I have these expectations of God. And these expectations just aren't being met right now. And think to the cross. And more importantly, think to the empty tomb. Because there, on, that, on those three days, when human history was changed, God's promises have come true. God's righteousness is revealed. His justice is revealed. For there... When we cross over into the new heavens and the new earth, we will be in a place where there are no more pain, where there are no more tears, where all the expectations of God are met, where our attitudes of Him are whole and true and perfect. Until that day, we're still living in this world of Genesis 3, of sin, of curse, of pain. And while we, like, like the teacher in Ecclesiastes, are left going, well, I don't get this. I don't get why the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering. We can fall back 
onto that, that knowledge that it will go well with those who fear God. God, that knowledge of Jeremiah, well, ultimately you're going to be you're like a mighty warrior. You're going to eradicate the wicked. And we know, friends, that Jesus Christ promised us in the book of Revelation that when he returns, there will be no more pain, no more tears, and no more suffering. Let me pray for us. And Lord, many of us carry expectations on life and what we expect you to do and who you should be. And Lord, your word has revealed to us, you are a good God, you are a just God. And yet we do live in a world that is upside down, that is strange. And Father, we may not understand what we're going through right now, like Job, like the teacher, even a Jeremiah who knew the calling on his life. But Lord, we know that ultimately you will bring about the end of pain, the end of tears, the end of all suffering. And Lord, for those of us that are wrestling with the expectations we have on you, the desire to be just happy in our lives, I pray that we can reflect Jesus Christ more and more. Take on the attitude that in this situation, to become more like Jesus because of it. We pray for your help and strength in this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.